So let us hear the word of God, starting in Acts 25, 13. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charges in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. On the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I had found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we've examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our, for, to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And as I did, and I did so in Jerusalem, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. 
In connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by, de- by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would, said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying those, these things in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows what, uh, about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for the chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. The word of God given as a gift to the people of God. Paul had what those families that were just dedicating their children need, confidence. To stand in front of a family, both spiritual and physical, and to make that bold declaration, I will raise up this child in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. I will devote my life to make sure that this child knows the word of God, the truth about God. Um... It's just really hard these days. And one of the things that is just so um, sadly lacking in our speech, in our conversations, but more than that, in our spirit, 
like inside of us, is a confidence that when you hear the Apostle Paul speak, you just wonder, like, where, where's that coming from? I don't know, anybody else just listen to the Apostle Paul talk and it's like, it's like something is, 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 is disconnected from your life and his? He makes some pretty bold assertions, ones that are not just unpopular today because of their content, but are actually rather un, uh, unpopular today because of the, the boldness with which he speaks. The Apostle Paul makes some statements that usually we reserve to just certain people. They're usually long since dead. Yeah, you know, I know Noah had confidence to build a boat, or I know that Moses, even though he said he was afraid to speak and was not very good at speaking. Yeah, I know, I know Moses stood before Pharaoh rather boldly, and then you have Elijah on Mount Carmel or Isaiah before the people of Israel. And then, of course, there's Jesus, who spoke rather boldly, but Jesus always gets a pass because he's, you know, so different. And then you have, like, Peter, James, and John in the book of Acts. They are noted repeatedly, particularly in Acts chapter 4, for the boldness with which they spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the need for people to put their faith in him. And so you listen to um, people like that talk. And you just wonder, what, what are they seeing that I'm not seeing? What are they convicted about that I am actually missing? How can they be so confident? And maybe we even ask the question, is it right to be that confident? Like, isn't it good to have doubts or questions? Isn't it almost appropriate to wonder and we find ourselves gravitating around those stories in the Bible or those individuals in the Bible that are authentically and genuinely just wrestling with the existence of God and the purpose of God in their lives. And all of a sudden, those stories take a prominent place. The man who says to Jesus, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief, he becomes our hero, and Paul becomes the exception. Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying consistently. He says it before great and small. He speaks rather courageously, rather boldly, no matter his circumstances. And he says something like this, that the presence and the work of God in the world are obvious. Really? Like, obvious? Can I ask a question? Is it obvious to you? Like when you look at what is happening in the world and when you look at what God has promised and when you try to understand the existence of God and the working out of God, particularly through Jesus of Nazareth who came to this world, born of the Virgin Mary, dies on a cross, is raised back to life, obvious? How many of you have questions? Anyone else? Wonders? Doubts? And yet the Apostle Paul speaks so boldly it really makes us wonder if we're missing something. These are the words from the text, and let me, let me place them in the context. In the middle of this speech, as he is speaking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he talks about that he has been persuaded, and that he has been convinced, and that Jesus Christ himself, actually in this encounter, this is the only place where Paul gives this added information. You don't find this in Acts 9, not in Acts 22. Paul, why are you kicking against the goats? Do you even know what he's talking about there? There are these things that, that keep animals on track. 
They, they kind of keep you in line. And what Jesus said to the Apostle Paul is, I have been trying to lead you. You've been convinced, by the way, but I've been trying to lead you, and you're kicking against what I'm trying to keep you in line. You're fighting against me. And in the midst of the speech, Festus, and being the governor, I guess you're allowed to do this, just interrupts him and says, you are out of your mind by the way that you're talking. Paul, would, if he had time, would continue to talk about virgins giving birth, all the miracles that Jesus did, all these being proofs. But he definitely focuses on the resurrection of the the dead, particularly Jesus. And then this is the statement. Why is it so hard for you to believe that God could raise the dead? And, And sometimes I wonder, man, it's just so hard to believe that God raised people from the dead. Paul says this in verses 25 and 26. I'm not out of my mind. Like what you read even as confidence, he's describing, it, it's, it's not like I've got this perspective and I really think this perspective is somehow insightful. He doesn't even do, and I've had this experience, although he talks about the experience, but he says the experience confirmed the word, which makes it so clear. And his bold statement is not, well, everybody saw what happened to me. His bold statement is, is that what God does, he does not do in hiding. I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Boy, if there's something that really would just kind of stir things up in 2019, it's that. Because I hear more conversations from Christian people Some of these conversations I have started and been a part of myself. Acting as though what God did 2,000 years ago just happened in some small part of the world and somehow it got all the way here. Don't know how that works. And then I try to offer up um, some half faith, half sociological perspective on just how things change and currents move. I think the Apostle Paul would, would, would probably chastised me a little bit for not believing more in the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and his leading and his direction. And I'd say, yeah, but Paul, you don't know what it's like. It's just so hard nowadays. People have a real hard time believing the stuff I got to preach. See, that's why I like a text like this, because it's not like they believed. They told him he was crazy. Literally, some translations, you are mad! Like you've lost all touch of reality. The faith that you have and the way that you're willing to risk your life, Paul, makes no sense. And Paul says, yeah, it actually makes total sense because we all know here that God exists and we all know. And by the way, I think they're going, I don't think we know this. But Paul so confidently knows this. God does not work in corners, that he doesn't hide himself, and then a few people from their perspective find him. That's why it's it's so good to read the book of Romans, because that's where you get a lot of Paul's um, boldness coming out. 
Romans chapter 1, verse 19, this is what Paul says. By the way, um, just, I just want you to listen. You don't have to grade it yet. Just listen. The Apostle Paul makes this assertion. For what can be known about God? He is describing people who claim that they don't believe in him or don't want to follow him. Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And again, this is so not popular today. He just takes off all of our profound skepticism and all of our doubt. And it's, it's not like he doesn't care about it, but he pushes it to the side and says, listen, I, I know we, we can talk about this. I really do believe that it's fine to bring our doubts, and we'll talk about this, bring in our doubts and our wondering and our concerns but he says, but let's not miss what is so plain. Let's not miss what is so clear. Let's not miss what is so evident. And at this point, I'm not even asking you to necessarily buy it. I think that's why this amazing book <laughs> that I believe stands at the very crossroads of the issue. This book speaks so confidently, not just about no, it just speaks so confidently that, that God is alive and is doing things in the world, and then it invites me to, to believe it. But one thing it doesn't really do is invite me to doubt it and invite me to wonder about it. No, it invites me to belief. John's gospel ends, these things, I could have written down a lot more, but these things are written down so that you might believe and that you might have life in his name. That's why John wrote his gospel. Not so that you and I would wonder, how did he feed 5,000 people? But that by recognizing this story, that we would believe these things to be true. But I get the question, really? Confidence? I got too many questions. What about the fact that there are so many people that don't believe? And then you put alongside of that, does it not just seem inappropriate um, on the side of arrogance to believe that somehow those of us that believe the Bible are right and those that don't believe the Bible are wrong? Like, does that not just, and can you catch like even the cultural mood? Do you guys feel that? That to be so bold in that assertion, to be so convinced in your own mind somehow is a sign more of your arrogance than of a humble belief in that God is and that God has provided? What about those people that don't believe? I had a conversation actually just this past week with a young man and I was sharing with him the need to build your life upon Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And in the middle of that conversation, he asked me a question, a very good question. You, do, you, do you know about, there's an organization called Stumo. And um, this organization, and I, actually I, I know that organization very well. <laughs> we, we share in their mission, actually. But he said to me, what do you think about like, Stumo and the fact that they, they go to India and they try to convert people who are going through life, who are absolutely fine, who are just following their Hindu faith, and they try to convert them to Christianity, you can tell he's taking a sociology class, right? Because you do know, you do realize that religion and, and culture 
are so firmly embedded in one another. And then when we lead people to Christ, we're, we're having, they're losing their culture. And what do you think about that? Like it just seems, and then you can imagine the words imperialistic, colonialist, colonialistic. You, you can just get a sense of that. Like, doesn't it seem like there's something wrong with that? And I asked him this question. What do you believe of those people of the Hindu faith who don't know Christ, who've never known Christ? When they meet God, do you believe they're living at peace with God? Well, of course they are, as long as they're doing the best that they can. Okay. What about Muslims? As long as they're doing the best that they can. Okay. What about Buddhists? Well, as long as they're doing the best that they can. Okay. What about Nazis? No, Nazis, by the way, don't get the pass, which I understand. So how do you know this, I asked him. What I found fascinating was he was so confident in what he believed. He wasn't going, hey, I'm taking the sociology class, and it's really causing me to wonder whether or not sociologists know anything. I very seldom get that. <laughs> Sunday school teachers get kicked in the teeth. Sociologists, brilliant. I find that interesting. But with rather, and I, by the way, I don't even fault him for his boldness. But with rather clear confidence, he speaks so clearly and confidently. I asked him this one question. You, you do realize, though, then you're building your entire life around this decision that God is fine with any other way of thinking as long as people do that. They're, well, not any other way. Um, socially constructed ways that socially are constructedly agreed upon by certain people. See how complicated this is getting rather quickly? Are, are you confident enough to, um, to just... Can you guarantee that when these people meet the Lord... That everything is going to be fine, which was interesting because I think that was the first time at that moment he began to think about the implications of his own belief system. Like, do you feel confident walking around the world and going, hey, by the way, I'm here as an ambassador from God, and you can keep doing what you're doing. Everything's fine. That'll be another conversation that we're going to have. But I said to him, and I'm there, you know, trying to muster up confidence. Because I know what it's like to wonder and to doubt. Like, I know what it's like to stand in Africa or in, um, in Burma. And just see so many people that don't think like me and to wonder. I get that. There's just so many of them. There's always been so many of them. Noah, God, there's so many of them. There's like me and my kids, that's it. I know, keep building. God, I don't want to go back to Egypt. There's so many of them. Start walking. Elijah at Carmel, there's so many. I love that, there's always so many of them. Jesus dies alone. There's so many of them. See, it's, it's, the, it's the challenge and it's the beauty of faith. It doesn't deny that the road, the narrow road is few. It doesn't deny the fact that we're going to ask tough questions about why do so few find it? 
But right now my question is, why, because there's so few, does that cause me to, um, to be silent or begin to lose my confidence in the word? The confidence that we see in the Apostle Paul, it's easy for us to say, yeah, but that's just not my personality. Leave that to prophets. Listen, I am not talking this morning about a kind of um, confidence that allows you to then stand bold before the thousands. No. It's the kind of confidence um, she'll never, ever preach a sermon in front of a church. She's just excited about taking her little boy home. She wants him to go to church. And she's already dreading, you know it, she's already dreading the day that he's going to come back with a whole list of questions and she doesn't even feel like ready or prepared to even answer them. Maybe I'll just, I'll, he, he likes to talk more anyway. It's not the confidence to stand up in the marketplace Sandwich board preaching, repent or perish. I'm not going there. It's the kind of confidence that sometimes appears in a sermon, but is always lived out at home and in the workplace and on the street where you live. So I'm not talking about personality. If you ever get an opportunity, I'd really encourage you to meet my wife. She is the quintessential opposite to everything that I am, except we both share a faith in Christ. One of us really likes our kids. So you have similarities and you have differences. It's her more than me. Um, you have similarities and you have differences, and yet I would tell you um, my wife is a great picture of an, a different kind of personality that is profoundly confident. So please don't let your personality become your excuse. No, I, I am all for letting God work out where and what the audience looks like and how the conversation continues. I'm not asking you to pick a debate or a fight with Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris, these great, profound, very intelligent atheists. But I'm just saying like, a, a confidence that even, it's not just about this, but even allows you to worship boldly. And to raise up your children with confidence that what you are asking of them is right and true because the word is clear. But there's so much that I don't know. Like, listen, I, I get it. There is so, not only me, but there's so much that cannot be known. So I just don't know where that confidence can come from. I have, um, for every statement you have, I've got a question. And I get it. There is a lot. There is a lot that I do not know. So let me be clear of this. The Apostle Paul is not going, hey, by the way, I know everything. People get this wrong. The Apostle Paul is not claiming to know everything, but he's claiming to be very sure of one thing, and that is God's presence and activity in the world. Well, I got a question for you, Paul. And Paul would say, well, great, because I know where we can take this question, because Jesus is great at that. Like, I know where we can go to try to understand what the answer to your question might be. Let us look and see what God's word says. Notice how many times the Apostle Paul says that the prophet spoke clearly about this, that Moses spoke clearly about this. So let's go back and look at it. See, that's the, 
I, I don't trust the word. And I, I get it. I've studied a lot about how the Bible came to be and what it means to believe in the Bible and cultural influences and hermeneutical trajectories and sociological and the psychology of interpretation. I mean, I've studied all of these things. And what's interesting is that even in my studying, it caused me to, to wonder and to doubt. And if I have a confession to make this morning, it is that I did spend a large part of my, um, a large part of my adult life, actually, celebrating and speaking openly about my doubts and my questions, which I only half apologize for. I don't mind being honest. I'll never apologize for being honest. But I had someone come to me at a moment in which I really needed to hear it, and they asked me this question. The fact that they were a lot younger than me really helped. But when I was in my 20s and in my 30s where everything was cool to doubt and the hermeneutic of suspicion, the interpretive way of looking at everything, wondering and doubting, um, uh, I was brilliant when I was in my 20s and 30s. Absolutely brilliant. I knew how to not believe in, in a lot of things and just doubt and have questions for everything. And then finally this, this, this young man asked me, why is it that you believe so much in your doubts and doubt so much in what you believe? Because I live in America. Because I'm educated. I mean, if I'm going to be honest with you, that's why. I, I'll be on, I didn't get it from this. I wasn't like, well, I was reading clearly the words of Jesus, and he made me wonder completely. No, there's a big part of... Um, of, of what I have been taught to make me really feel like there's so much that I don't know and it just makes me go quiet, go silent. Instead of knowing what topics maybe I don't need to be so profound upon, again, notice the Apostle Paul doesn't say, I'm an expert on everything, who has a question? He says, I know the most important thing. I know that God is. I know that he does not hide. I know that he does not hide his will or his purpose for you. I know that he cares for you deeply and he speaks so confidently about a small area of life. I know there's much you don't know and there's much that I do not know. But there is much that you and I can know and I would even argue, because you know I'm 50 now, there's much that I know and there is much that I have believed. And the older I get, the more I recognize how important it is that I be very upfront and honest and confidently humble in what I believe. Because people are watching. And you don't want to walk into a doctor's office and go, well, you know, truth is, I, I do have a degree, but there's a lot I don't know. You don't want pilots on airplanes going, yeah, I mean, who knows how this really works. I'm not an engineer. <laughs> uh, when's the next flight to Detroit? It's really interesting how much that concept of, of confidence, how much we even really want it. Can you imagine a quarterback trying to make the next call and just... I don't know. 
the call that's coming in from the coach, just a question mark, right? And it's not like where there's 12 signs and you got to discern which one it is, just 12 question marks. No, where things matter, we want confidence. I agree with you. Not arrogance. I'm not talking about pride. Last week when we were praying for our enemies, when we are trusting God to work it out, like that shapes all of our thinking. It's not about pride and arrogance. It is about believing in what we believe in and trusting God to work it out. So then what about my questions and my doubt? What do you want me to do with those? I'm all for being honest and I'm all for being genuine. And then I'm all for, are, are you willing to do the hard work, the heavy lifting of taking your doubts and taking your concerns and taking them to the word of God, taking them under the guidance of the spirit of God, and then literally, let, let's, let's hammer this out, like let's work this through. And I don't promise some easy path of believism. No, join the long list of people who have diligently studied and struggled to believe in God in the most difficult and the most oppressive times. You're not alone. It is the history of the church that we are few and they are many and they are so against us. And I will hang on to this belief because I can do no other. It's okay that you have questions. It really is. It's okay that you have doubts. I was blessed this week, a reminder from one of my favorite writers, Tim Keller. Tim Keller said this, contemporary persons go to the Bible to find those things that they just have objections to. That's how the contemporary person looks at the Bible. What parts of this do I not agree with? What parts of this do I do not like? which is an approach to Scripture, very legitimate one. But then he said, Christians go to the Bible, and they ask the question, what does God find objectionable in my life? Hmm, maybe it really is about perspective. Like maybe a lot of the doubts that I have had in the past or that you have right now, the questions that you have literally are based upon a perspective that you have of the word of God, which at its very basis doesn't even believe in the word of God. And can you be honest with that? You know why I don't believe? Because I don't believe. You know why I don't do this? Because I don't believe. Because I, I don't, the reason why I don't have confidence is because I don't have faith. I met, met a man um, in Ghana, Africa, named Abu. Yeah, his name was Abu. <laughs> and as we began to talk, um, how, how did you come to Christ, Abu? He didn't say, well, I grew up in a strong Christian family, and you know how sociology works. No, he said, I really wanted to learn to read, and so the only place that I could learn to read was at the mosque. And so I began to read the Quran, and they taught me how to read the Quran, and so I became a Muslim. And I was a Muslim for a number of years and was deeply involved in Muslim faith. And I did that and I just was really in. And then I wanted to learn English. So I found a Bible because they'll give you one of those. And, and the guy began to teach me about what it means to read the Bible. And he said, when I read the Quran, I kind of took it at face value, which is, by the way, a good way to read a book. Well, I read the Quran, I kind of took it at face value. And so I did the same thing when I read the Bible. And, and then there's this guy, Jesus. And... Um, 
He just said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And Muhammad didn't say that. And by the time, as I'm reading, you might call this simplistic. You might call this, yeah, uh, he called it faith. He called it belief. He read the Bible on the terms of the Bible, and he gave his life to Christ. He's now a pastor of a number of different churches. It's amazing what happens when we take the word of God for what it is, the word of God. That won't make all your questions just melt away. It won't make all your doubts completely disappear, I promise you. But at least give you an understanding of why you and the Apostle Paul and the prophet Elijah and Moses, the liberator, that there is a common denominator that exists. And it's not that they're amazingly insightful or that they're brilliant. It's that they believe in God, that he has made himself clear, and that he doesn't do things in the corner. But I don't have any kind of Damascus Road experience. That's what's missing. I get why you pastors are confident. You probably had, and I didn't have a Damascus Road experience. I didn't have that. I somehow find great strength in Paul's Damascus Road experience. I take actually great encouragement in Noah's story of building a boat. I take great confidence and faith in what Elijah experienced. I don't have a Damascus Road. And so I'm grateful to be part of a community that doesn't say you have to have the experience. I'm part of a community that says together we have amazing experiences that guide us and bind us and lead us. And I don't have to be the one to have it always figured out. No, I can actually submit myself to someone in the past that has gone further than I. Thank you, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I'm able to, to actually, I don't know, piggyback spiritually off of someone like the Apostle Paul who is so bold and who is so confident. It's okay. We don't have to have the experience to have the faith or to have the belief. What the Apostle Paul ultimately says is that it is obvious enough. He doesn't answer every question, but he says the presence and the work of God is obvious enough. The Apostle Paul actually says this about doubt and unbelief. You may agree or not agree with it. In Romans chapter 1.18, before he boldly says that what will be known about God is plain to them, he says this, for those of us that wonder why doesn't everybody see it. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, that their unrighteousness, that their own lifestyle, that their own desires, that their own way of wanting things, that that suppresses the truth. That's the biblical answer. Why doesn't everybody believe? Because not everybody wants to submit to God. Because not everybody wants what God wants. I love reading people of very divergent ideas and opinions. I don't know if you know uh, the English writer, Julian Barnes. He's not a believer, he's an agnostic. And one of his deep concerns over the last, say, 20 or 30 years is just how much the church has almost gone radio silent in a lot of our beliefs. Now, not, not that we don't have people that want to stand up and get angry, but now I'm talking about like a, a gentle and kind um, and yet confident depiction of the truth. He actually says that he is fed up with intolerant and squishy spirituality. And he finds the notion of redefining deities into something that works for you, nothing short of grotesque. This is an agnostic. 
At a dinner party with neighbors, he overheard a young man shout out sarcastically, but why should God do that for his son and not for the rest of us? Julian (laughs) Barnes, the agnostic, shouts back, because he's God and he can do whatever he wants. Barnes takes up the mantle of the agnostic prophet and he hurls criticism at the idolatries of modern niceties. He says, there seems little point in a religion which is merely a weekly social event, apart from, of course, the normal joys of weekly social events, as opposed to one that tells you exactly how to live, which colors and stains everything in your life. What's the point of faith unless you and it are serious, seriously serious, unless your religion fills direct, stains, and sustains your life? If the young Barnes thought that a God who cared about any kind of stain he might make upon his trousers couldn't possibly exist, the older Barnes thinks that the only religion worth embracing and rejecting is one that stains everything. He realizes that in the end, it's got to mean something. You may not agree with the Apostle Paul. You may not agree with what the Bible says. But it doesn't somehow remove the confidence that the Apostle Paul is going to continually have and I'm going to continually have as to why Stumo should travel to India and I should walk across the street to boldly raise up my children not because when they go to school then they'll be like everybody else but so that when they meet Jesus they will have peace with him through faith in him I grew up in Canada, and I'm part of that wonderful generation that was one of the first ones to, um, almost with, com- with complete wholesale, abandon the faith of their parents. Gen X, the slackers. One of our favorite writers, a gentleman by the name of Douglas Copeland, writes a book a number of years ago called Life After God, in which he describes um, why it's so hard to believe in God. And Douglas Copeland writes this at the end of his book. So his whole whole book is just these little small essays on why it's so hard to believe in God, especially in, in our culture today, and all these questions. And then he ends with this on page 359 of his book. Now here is my secret. I tell it to you with an openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. And so I pray that you are in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God and that I'm sick And I can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me. Help me give because I'm no longer capable of giving. To help me be kind as I'm no longer capable of kindness. To help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. And what Douglas does not need is to someone come up and say, well, that's your perspective. I was at a wedding yesterday and I I didn't just say, you know, you guys are in love with each other. And so I kind of hope that works out. I hope you really love each other um, because it's going to get hard. Uh, chances are you're probably not going to make it. Um, at least that's my perspective. No, I actually said that God gave us marriage and that God has given us a way to be married. And God has given us an example in Jesus Christ. And God has given us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so I can stand before you today and say you can do this. Under God's strength and under his protection, you can do this. Why? 
You are so arrogant. No, I just, I believe those things. And I need to be more clear and honest and forthright with what I believe. Because what Douglas Copeland needs and what these children need are moms and dads that will somehow stand up and say with confident humility, not arrogance and boldness that is somehow just coming from themselves, but a boldness that comes from a trust in the word of God. What Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. To the Greek, as a Greek, I'm really grateful for that. And so now I want us to pray. I want us to pray that we would have a kind of confidence, for those of you that have faith in Jesus Christ, a kind of confidence that somehow would give you the strength to continue and to speak with, with profound humility and kindness as people wonder and struggle. And that they would look to you and they would be able to see someone who definitely believes in who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. So if you believe in him and you believe that God has made himself abundantly clear, may the people that you meet with, may they see the faith that you have and may they have the confidence to follow. Let's pray. So God, we give it to you. We thank you for your kindness and goodness, for your love and protection. God, we thank you for the way in which you have worked. God, the Bible makes it so clear, and yet I get the wondering and the doubting. May you, Father, be the one, without arrogance or pride, to give us a trust and a confidence in you. For God, you are good. And it's in Jesus' name we trust these things. Amen.